you for listening, but please be advised that I don't just believe shit I hear on podcasts, and I really hope you don't either. Be skeptical and look into things for yourself. If you find that I was wrong about something, the best thing you can do for me is to let me know. You can do that at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. Please also be aware of the fact that I do swear and I don't bleep anything out, so listener discretion is advised. I'm Ruby, and this is episode 90 of Living Through Extinction, a short-to-the-point podcast with science and skepticism, environment and wildlife, and stuff I find interesting that I want to learn more about. Today I talk about an article I read about someone retracting their paper, the future of microbes in our recycling processes, why the number of critically endangered fish in Australia has doubled, and an amazing new vaccine for honeybees. If you've joined me before, then thank you for returning. I really do appreciate you. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome. I hope you find it both fun and informative. And if you are interested in supporting the show, all the possible ways are listed after the final segments and thank yous. I've talked in the past about good and bad eggs being in every profession and science not being immune from that bit of human nature. It's not an easy thing to admit you made a mistake to admit you were wrong. Retracting one's papers with the realization of its flaws is incredibly hard to do. Those who take the steps to do so are demonstrating the highest standard of ethics. Even though it's the right thing to do, they will get flack for it. And it can affect the acceptance of their papers going forward or their funding. I read an article recently about an individual who had to go through just that. They had a paper published in Nature and were one day informed of some flaws in their work and a retraction was called for. The researcher talks about their feelings of disbelief, followed by embarrassment, frustration and concern for their career. But then they read the critique. It was harsh and it did indeed point out several fundamental flaws in the methods, as well as the underlying data gathered from other studies. Once the errors had been made public, the emails started flooding in. While some were supportive, some were very harsh, admonishing them for the methods they used. While they were devastated by the negativity coming at them, they had to admit that the mistakes pointed out were valid. And the only ethical thing to do at this point would be to retract the paper. So they retracted it and went to hand in the resignation to their department. Thankfully, their boss refused it, saying that the errors in the paper were honest mistakes. So they did not lose their job. But unfortunately, they did have a hard time getting their work published and obtaining funding for future projects after the retraction. That's too bad because they had literally proven themselves to be honest and ethical with the retraction. They learned from their mistakes in that study and will not be making them again. The researcher claims to have grown as a scientist thanks to this experience. It was embarrassing and humbling, but absolutely the right thing to do. They did right by being open and accountable and admitting their mistakes. They say that they now see that they should have reached out for feedback from other researchers before publishing, something I'm sure they will do from now on. Scientists have their specialties. No one person can possibly know it all. The more people one has review their work, the better chance of submitting something with no errors. Honest mistakes happen. I wish researchers were encouraged rather than punished for retracting flawed work. This should also be a reminder to everyone that science is self-correcting. There will always be someone ready to prove the latest discovery wrong. That's how scientific skepticism works. 
Too bad more fields aren't more skeptical, damn it. According to an article at smithsonianmag.com, the future of recycling may be in microbes. Since the 1950s, when plastic first started hitting the market, 9.1 billion tons of plastic have been produced, and out of that, less than one-tenth has been recycled. Worse yet, about 12% of all of that has been incinerated, which releases dioxins and other carcinogens into the air we breathe. The great majority of the rest of that 9.1 billion tons is in landfills and out in the environment, including all of the oceans. According to the article, the mass of this waste would be equal to 35 million blue whales, and apparently plastic is responsible for more greenhouse gas emissions than the aviation industry. Yikes! And while recycling is better than not recycling, it doesn't go on forever. Each time a product is made, the plastic becomes more brittle and harder to work with. Say you have a broken plastic bowl which is made of recyclable material. When recycled, the plastic may not be able to make something quite as solid as the bowl, but it can be used to make plastic bottles. Those bottles may be recycled again, but the plastic which results may not be usable to make more bottles. It would still be usable to make a textile, however. It's after the textile round that most plastics can no longer be reused. They just don't hold together enough anymore at this point. A company called Carbios is one of many new startups looking to tackle our plastic recycling limits. They are aiming to create a circular plastic economy that does not require petroleum extraction. Carbios, in particular, has been working on enzymatic recycling technology since they were founded in 2011. Their refining method uses an enzyme found in a microorganism to convert polyethylene terephthalate into its constituent monomers terephthalic acid and monoethylene glycol. Best of all, their method does not require the expensive hazardous solvents commonly used at this time. The process is a type of chemical recycling called depolymerization, and the method has amazing results. Once the plastic has been broken down to the fundamental building blocks which make it up, then those building blocks can be reassembled into polymers again, making a recycled plastic which is just as strong as brand new. This means no more getting a weaker and more brittle product after each recycling round. In theory, this method could be used to recycle a plastic bottle until the end of time, which could kind of change everything. Scaling up is required, of course, but they've already been reached out to by companies like L'Oreal, Nestle, and PepsiCo to eventually work with them. I'll be watching for updates on this one in the future. Apparently, the number of critically endangered fish species in the Australian area has doubled. Critically endangered means that the species is very close to extinction. Nine new species were added to that list in March for a total of 18, and another 12 are in danger of landing on it in the near future. The nine are assessed as having a 50% chance of going extinct in the wild in the next 20 years. The largest issues facing most of these fish are invasive species, particularly brown and rainbow trout. Obviously, the increased competition for food is going to be a problem, but the main issue is that the trout crowd out the fish which belong there, forcing them into smaller portions of their original range. The result is more inbreeding, and the result of that is less genetic diversity, and the result of that is eventual genetic decline of the species. Saving these critically endangered species will require captive breeding programs and translocation, though I haven't come across any plans for any of that yet. Hopefully it's in the works. Insects 
do not create antibodies. So it's always been assumed that vaccines would never work for them. More recent studies, however, have proven this assumption to be incorrect and just in time as it's needed now more than ever. American fowl brood disease is caused by the bacteria Panabacillus larvae and it affects bees. The name fowl brood came about due to the foul odor that comes out of the hive when the bees start to die. It kills honeybees while they're in the pre-pupal state, reducing the larva to a brown goo that smells foul. It's devastating, easily wiping out entire colonies and at least a contributor to the dramatic drops in populations. Normally, when the disease is discovered, government regulations state that all beekeeping equipment and hives be burned and buried. There is no cure, and up to now has been no preventative measure that might be taken. We now know, thanks to continuing studies, that bees do in fact have a primitive immune system. It's just different. And it turns out that exposing the queen of a colony to dead bacteria via their food source results in a hive with immunity. The vaccine was developed by Dallin Animal Health together with the University of Georgia. They start with a vaccine which contains dead Penibacillus larval bacterial cells. It's mixed in with the food the worker bees eat. When the worker bees secrete their milky royal jelly, the queen ingests it as well. And it doesn't just protect her, but goes directly to her ovaries, immunizing her developing larvae. It's expected it will also be effective for bumblebees used in agriculture, so testing in those areas will likely be next. So there's now a way to protect our honeybees from fowl brood disease, and even better, it's shown zero side effects and zero impacts on the food products the bees produce, such as honey. The U.S. Department of Agriculture recently approved its use, and Dallin Animal Health plans to distribute limited amounts to commercial beekeepers to start. Then, hopefully, sell throughout the United States by the end of this year. Obviously, this doesn't solve everything affecting the bees at this time, but eliminating fowl brood disease is a hell of a great start. That's all I have for today. This turned out to be a super short one. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube for short weekly skeptical videos. Thank you for joining me. May your health and sanity continue to be replenished daily. My eternal gratitude goes out to the following people. Jason Martin for helping me get started on this project more than three years ago. I wouldn't be doing this right now if not for him. Kathy Rayner for her musical contribution on the violin. Paul Palmer for his musical contribution on the guitar. He can be found at WPG Suitcase Drummer on Instagram. Dustin Harder for composing and recording the intro and outro for the show. You can find him on Instagram at Prairie Soul Music. And finally, thank you to my household for putting up with me. Love y'all lots. I hope you will choose to join me again in two weeks for episode 91 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoy Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe and rate and to comment and like positive comments on your favorite podcast player. Or you can help out by following, liking, and sharing on all the social medias. This show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Pinterest, and TikTok, and under LTE Pod on Twitter and Hive. There is also a Patreon at patreon.com slash livingthroughextinction. There you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more, as well as help me to plant some trees. If you have any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions, please email them to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias. Mm -hmm.